Morning Cornerstone Church. We're going to be reading from the book of Hebrews. If you have your Bibles, you can open up with me there, the book of Hebrews. It's way at the end, just a few pages before the book of Revelation. And uh, we're starting a new sermon series called Relieved. Uh, we're going to take a little break from Genesis the next few weeks. Um, we got uh, a sermon series from Hebrews, and we have a representative of Agua Viva coming to speak to us next week, and then we'll continue with one more week of the series. And then uh, after that, we will be heading into a series called Reconciled. And uh, we just got done with, uh, we're going through the book of Genesis. And uh, if you haven't gone through those sermon series, you can go online to ccbland.org and listen to them. We've been going through it for about 16 years now. Um, I've enjoyed it. I hope you have as well. And uh, we just hit Sodom and Gomorrah the last few weeks, and it was intense. I mean, that's just an intense passage of God's judgment. And so I just wanted a little relief. And so today we're going to look at the security that we have in Christ. And so we'll be looking at that from the book of Hebrews, taking a break from that Genesis series. And then we've got uh, our sermon series as we go back into Genesis. We're going to look at Jacob and Esau and the story of, of their reconciliation. We're going to talk about how the resurrection of Jesus Christ reconciles us with the God we love. And then that gives us the pattern for our relationships here on earth so we'll be talking in that sermon series about how because Jesus Christ rose from the dead, we are made right with God, and our relationships with each other uh, can be made right as well through that model of forgiveness. And so make sure you're coming for that. We've got a 10,000 egg Easter hunt this uh, year, and you know that's going to be more eggs for sure than the kids uh, that our church would need or even want. And so make sure that you're inviting neighbors, inviting friends, 10,000 eggs. I know it's ridiculous, but we found a place you can get filled Easter eggs online for cheap, so we just figured, why not? Let's just do a lot of them. Um, so it's going to be a ton of fun. We'll go out to the uh, football fields and the fields in the back. We'll spread them out all over. We'll let the kids run loose. And they can have as many eggs as they want. Like, bring a garbage bag. It'll be great. Um, and then, of course, during the service, uh, we'll be talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, our goal, our passion is not children's entertainment. It's the Lord. And so we'll be giving an altar call, asking people to stand up if they would like to accept Christ. And so there's somebody in your life that you want to see uh, reach the gospel. Uh, make sure to invite them that week. You know, we'll give the true gospel. We won't leave them short of the kingdom of heaven if they give a response that Sunday. And so that is coming up on April 12th. And right now, it's tax season. Isn't that great? Is, has anybody done their taxes yet? Can I even, can I ask that question? I'm not sure. Maybe that might be classified information. I don't really know what's appropriate to ask or not when it comes to taxes. I don't know what's appropriate or not when it comes to taxes. Taxes are one of the most stressful times of the year. I'm never sure what's exactly expected of me. It's an incredibly stressful time. The government comes and they say, you owe us money. And I say, fine, no problem. How much do I owe you? And they say, well, here's a form. You figure it out. Okay, well, I've never done this before, and I don't know exactly what you're looking for, but how about I'll do my best. I'll do it as best as I can, and then I'll write a check for whatever it comes out as, and I'll send it in, and we'll call it even. And the government says, No. No, there's a right answer to this question, and we know exactly what it is, so you would better do it right. To which I respond, why don't you just tell me what it is? And they say, no, no, we wouldn't do a thing like that. To which I respond, well, what if I get it wrong? And they say, well, we'll put you in prison. <laughs> Come on, this can't be really how we're doing this, right? And you never, I just feel like I never know where I stand with him. I feel like I'm always going to get busted on a technicality, like I'm going to fill in this form, send it in, and a few weeks later, I'm going to have some guys in suits with glasses come to my door and say, you made $53 from a garage sale back in 2008 that you didn't claim. It's time to come with us, buddy. I feel like I never know where I stand with them. I feel always insecure when it comes to 
my relationship with the IRS. Have I done it well enough? Have I done enough for them? What do they think of me? Why won't they tell me? And I think it's a lot of times we can feel about our relationship with God as well. We go through life and we're trying to be godly. We're trying our best, but we're coming up short regularly. And we start to think, we start to wonder, how does God feel about me? As I've tried to be godly and failed again, what does he think? Where do I stand with him? What is he saying? What is he thinking? Am I going to get busted on a technicality? I'm going to try my best and get there and have a gotcha moment where he says, actually, what you really needed to do was this. And today we're going to look at Hebrews chapter 4. We're going to talk about that tension. This passage is all about that tension of, of trying to follow God and being godly while still resting in his forgiveness and having relief. And so this passage is going to walk us through some of that tension. And then at the end of it, it's going to give us a great reason for relief. So starting in Hebrews chapter 4. Oh, if you're a sermon note taker, we have sermon notes in the bulletin. And there's a tension between challenging ourselves to be more godly and feeling secure with, that, with God. It's like the more we challenge ourselves to be godly, oftentimes the more we're aware of our failure, and then the more insecure we feel with God. So Hebrews chapter 4, starting verse 1, says, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. And so God's promise still stands. Now, in the first few hundred years after this is written, the vast majority of believers in Jesus Christ felt the Apostle Paul wrote this. And so as we talk today, I'm going to be referring to this as Paul's writing. And so as Paul sits down and, and begins to think of what he wants to say to the Hebrew church, he reminds them that the promise of entering his rest still stands. Now, this is written 2,000 years ago. Jesus Christ came 2,000 years ago. And ever since, Christians gather on today's day, doing what we just did every Sunday, every week, for 2,000 years. And that promise still is available to us today, the promise of entering his rest. The promise of Jesus Christ returning to this world, removing all sin and evil and sending it to hell, taking all those who want him and believe into heaven and eternal rest. That promise still stands. If you haven't entered into that promise, if you don't know if you're going to heaven or hell, you still have time to choose. In fact, this reminds me of one of my favorite verses. It's 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. It said, The Lord does not delay his promise, as some understand delay, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. Why is it taking thousands of years? Jesus, what is he waiting for? Well, us to repent. Because he wants us. He wants all of us. His promise still stands. He's not slow in fulfilling it. He's patient. And if you haven't entered his rest, after the service we have a prayer team that's going to be in the back by the banner and they will lead you in a prayer of repentance of your sins and confession of faith that you may know that today that you will enter his rest. The promise of rest still stands. And I don't know if you need rest, but I need rest. I've got four kids, five and under, and there's no rest in my house. There's never any rest. We put them to bed starting at 7. And from that point forward, they're all getting back out of bed multiple times. I've got to go to the bathroom. I need a glass of water. JoJo's being too loud. Time and time again. And you have to 
bring them back and put them to bed again and again and again. And then throughout the night, they're getting up three to four times as a group for sure. I had to go potty. I puked on my blankets. I mean, it's just unbelievable. I can't make it through the night. And there's no rest in my house. And I'm exhausted. I'm exhausted from watching Sarah do all of that work. I need a break. But when you think about it, the rest that we're looking for, it's, it's interesting stuff, right? Because, like, we might work hard at our jobs. Some of us might work very physically hard at our jobs. But really, the rest that we're really wanting for, that our soul really craves, isn't even, isn't even rest from hard work so much, right? It's more rest from the sin. And hard work is actually very rewarding. It's more rest from the evil and the and the frustration and the suffering that we experience from living in a sinful world. Like even when you think about your job, it's, it's usually not your job that you want rest from. It's like the unappreciative boss and the lazy coworker and the selfish employee thinking about themselves rather than the company and the angry customer. The lack of freedom, having to just be stuck here as you've got something else you need to do. And the lack of freedom to be able to go and take care of what you need to take care of. We want rest from sin and evil. And in our families, too, right? Like, there's conflict in our families. There's all these things. And we don't really need, I mean, we'd love some rest. But what we really want is not even rest from our families. What we want rest is from the sin and evil that we experience and the suffering. From having to worry about our health or our take care of our parents as their health declines. Or worrying about our children and how we're going to help them overcome the challenges that they're facing in their life or will face in their life. And providing for everybody. And just, I mean, like, all of that is what we want rest from. I want, I want rest, and God gives us that promise. I've never had a reclining couch before. I've, so in the house I grew up in, we didn't have anything that reclined. In the apartment that Sarah and I had, we never had anything that reclined. In our, my dorm rooms, I never had anything that reclined. When Sarah and I bought a house, we went for years without anything that reclined, and finally we got our recliner. But I remember what it was like inviting myself over to friends' houses, you know, chatting with them upstairs, and all the while trying to get the party to move downstairs where the reclining furniture was and then finally i got my own there it is i wanted you to see it i love it so much it brings me so much peace and joy i come home and me and the kids i got an extra wide one so that we can all pile on the couch and watch football and i pop the little thing on the side and i've got a big giant glass of soda and they can't have any because they're too little and they all try to sip off my cup and i'm like no and it's fantastic it's fantastic. And this is a symbol of the rest that awaits from us. It just feels so good to kick up your feet and tell all evil just to, just to go to hell. Go to hell where you belong. I'm free in the Lord. I had a dream once that I was in a reclining chair. <laughs> I was in a reclining chair. I was watching a television, right? And I was flipping through the channels and a sermon came out. I'm telling you, I had a powerful experience in this dream of God's presence. As I'm listening to the word of God from this preacher in this sermon, it was like his spirit just came over me in this dream. It just felt fantastic. I remember when I was young, I used to take a lot of showers at night uh, before bed, my, and I would take them in the morning. But when I was a kid, I took them at night. And I remember uh, in, the, in the springtime and in the fall, you know, the window would be open, and my bed was right next to the window, and I'd take a shower at night, and I'd come out, and I'd lay down in that bed, and, you know, the water is still kind of evaporating. It just feels so cool and amazing. And that's kind of what it felt like. I'm just 
listening to this preacher and this the spirit just comes over me. It was like just this rest and relief and refreshing and it was incredible. And this is the kind of rest that awaits for us. It's fantastic. No one should miss out, right? And that's why Paul says, fear. And here's the tension. Here's the tension between that rest, that promise of godliness, of freedom that God has for us, that God wants for us, that God wants for you. And the tension of entering into that rest and coming through the sinful world into that rest. There's this tension. I want to get there, but I'm not there. God is there. He's godly. He's perfect. I'm not. How can I get there? How can I fit there? And Paul says, fear. This is so good. You don't want to miss out on it. And what does it mean to fear? There's a few different definitions of fear. The first is kind of the Halloween version, right, where, you know, everybody tries to get you afraid by putting some blood on their things and looking like a zombie and going, whoa, you know, that kind of thing. Oh, they're going to jump out and get you. You know, you come to the door to get the candy, and there's a ghost that pops up. And so there's that kind of fear. And then there's a different kind of fear, which is a little bit more akin to respect. And this is definitely the fear of God that we should have, because God is not going to jump out and get us. He's totally trustworthy. He's totally perfect. And yet we should be afraid. And the reason why the best analogy I've ever heard for that is like the Grand Canyon. I've used it a few times before. But the Grand Canyon, like, you have nothing to fear. I could stand at the Grand Canyon with my toes over the edge. Like, just like I'm standing at this stage. I've never been just standing and just fall forward unexpectedly. I've got nothing to fear from the Grand Canyon as far as it jumping out and getting me. But the Grand Canyon is awesome. It is awesome. It's not something to be disrespected. And if I'm standing next to the Grand Canyon, I'm going to fear. Even though I've got no reason for it to think that it's going to jump out at me, I know that if I start fooling around, if I start disregarding boundaries, well, then all of a sudden, I could really be in big trouble. And that's the same way it is with God. We have nothing to fear in God. However, we need to make sure that we are respecting what God has set as a boundary between good and evil. Because if we go too far, God is not there. God only goes so far. He's perfect. If we want to stay in his presence, if we want to be in his presence, then perfection is the place to be. And there's the tension. Because we know on a daily basis, we're disrespecting God. We know it deep down. Every time I sin, every time I fail to be godly, I am just disrespecting God once again. How does he feel about that? What do we do with that? The Bible encourages us to fear because a, a healthy respect of God is very important in our relationship with Christ. All of this tension is there for a good reason, to drive us into the arms of the Lord. And that's when it's healthy. But it can also be unhealthy. That fear, that weight can also cause us, if we're not having a foundation for relief, if all of that fear isn't based on some sort of foundation for relief, it can drive us away from the Lord. We're going to read as Paul continues to flesh out some of that tension. As we go through life and we sin and we sin, we start to feel about God like we do with the IRS. Am I going to get busted? Are they going to find out about that $53 I didn't? Is he going to find out about that white light? What does he think about that little thing I just did? Oh, no. Paul continues writing in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 2 and 3. He says, For good news came to us just as to them, 
But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. Whoop, go back. And so here he's talking about, you know, this message of salvation, this promise of God. Many have heard it, and it hasn't done good for a lot of people because they haven't listened. They haven't followed it. They haven't listened to what God wants. Now, I'll be sitting in the room, other room all the time, and I hear just, just unbridled chaos coming from the other room, and I yell, what's going on in there? And the kids respond one of two ways, right? They, they, they fear, and they respond, oh, Papa, we're listening. We're listening. Or if things aren't going good, they respond, Jojo's not listening. Gracie's not listening. You're not listening. I'm listening. You're not. And I know there's a problem. Someone's not listening. And it's the same thing with our relationship with God. God has a promise for us. We can all enter it. This is what he wants for all to reach repentance and be saved. It's up to us if we're going to listen. And have you listened? Have you listened to the promise? What is what is the promise? How do we get there? How do we listen? Well, it says right here about what happens when you don't reach that rest. It's that you're not united by faith. How we get there is faith in God. What God wants of us is to repent and believe in him for our forgiveness. That is how we ultimately enter into that rest. And have you listened? Have you repented of your sin and put your faith in Jesus? We're going to skip down to verse 9 as we continue reading. It says, So then there remains a Sabbath rest for those who, a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest also rested from his works as God did from his. And we just, uh, as I mentioned, we've been going through Genesis this fall. Uh, we did this sermon series on creation. If you, again, if you missed it, go online to ccblaine.org, listen to it. I just love Genesis. I love those creation stories. They teach us so much about God. And one of the things that the creation stories tell us is that God rested, and we should rest. That's why we're here today on the Lord's Day. It's a day of rest and worship. It's good to see you guys here today. If we don't put God first on his day, I want to ask, is God first on any other day? The answer is probably not. And so it's important to rest on God's day and to listen to what he says for our health, for the spiritual health of us and our families and others. And we learned all about the message that God has for us in creation, that he worked for six days and rested on the seventh day and then invites us to follow that healthy pattern. And one of the things we learn is God created in six days and rested on the seventh. And the Bible has, not only should that be the pattern of our week, but there's also a metaphor for our lives there. Just as God worked on six days and rested on the seventh, so we work during this lifetime. And on the seventh day, we've got an eternal rest coming for us. Just as God rested from his works, we'll rest from ours as well. There won't be this tension forever. There won't be this fear and this striving and this, this push to try to go out and challenge ourselves to follow God. It'll come naturally. It'll be a breeze. And we're going to rest from our works He's not just talking about hard work, fixing the, fixing the car, cleaning the kitchen, taking care of the kids, getting up early to get them to get It's not just a rest from that. It's a rest from this tension of being ungodly while challenging ourselves to follow God. The Bible compares the rest that we have 
as we enter God's kingdom at, to the rest that God rested on the seventh day. And there remains a Sabbath rest for us for eternity. That's his promise. And verse 11 says, Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. He says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of his heart, of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Since then, we have a high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. So there's that tension again. God sees everything I do. He's like the IRS times five. There's, a, um, there's a, an atheist named Christopher Hitchens who says, I can't take Christianity. Heaven sounds like a celestial North Korea where just the dictator sees everything and everything happens according to his will. And like, yeah, I mean, if you don't trust God and if you don't realize he's good, that sounds like hell. But God is perfectly good. He's purely trustworthy. As we think about him seeing every action, it can be frightening because we know that we've got plenty of moments of ungodliness, but the overall vision of God on our lives is fantastic. We want the creator looking at us. We want him knowing us. We want him bringing justice. We want him knowing all that's happened so that he can fix it all. Like we want that. But the tension is there. He goes back and he says, strive. Strive. Now look up the word strive. And I was going to make a slide for it. But then the phone rang or something and I forgot. And now I can't even remember what it means. But it means like make every effort. That's what it means. Make every effort. Because who wants to fall short of this rest? Like nobody. Nobody wants to fall short of this rest. What kind of, again, what keeps us from this rest? Disobedience. Disobeying what? Disobeying God's command of faith. Repent of your sins. Believe in me. That's the disobedience it's talking about. If it was disobedience of morality, then we'd all fail. There'd be no need to write this book. It'd just be over. Why, why, why bother? He's talking about the disobedience of faith. It's rejecting the Holy Spirit as he calls you to faith. It's actually called the sin of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. As you read through the Bible, there's this verse that if you've read through the Bible before, it stops you cold in your tracks. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven, people. Oh, thank God, that verse is so relieving. But the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. What? I got to make sure I know what that is because I don't want to fail to enter into that rest. What's exactly what Paul's talking about in Hebrews? It's the disobedience of the command of faith. What does the Holy Spirit do? It's not like you're going to be in your kitchen one day and like, you know, to be making dinner and maybe cut your finger and say some sort of blasphemous statement and then, oh no, you get to heaven and God says, well, you did everything right, but that moment in the kitchen, $53 at a garage sale in 2008, you're out. No, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is rejecting God's overall invitation to salvation. And so what does the Holy Spirit do? It says, come, come, come to me. Repent of your sins. It reveals, it convicts us of our sin, and it reveals the love of Jesus Christ for us. It reveals that promise for us, and we respond by putting our faith in him. And the disobedience that Paul's talking about that causes people to miss out on it, it's rejecting that spirit. No, no, I'm not going to repent. No, 
everything I've done makes total sense. Any reasonable people would look down and they'd see that I've done the best that I can and there's no reason for me to apologize to anybody. That's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit as he convicts our hearts. That's the disobedience that keeps us from entering into that rest. And so Paul saying, fear, strive, lest you fail. And so if you want to not fail, the answer is to repent. It's to put your faith and trust in Jesus for your forgiveness. We should always be challenging ourselves. Paul uses active words for our faith. Strive, fear, don't give up. There's going to be times of temptation, of disillusionment, of discouragement. Fear, strive, lest you not enter his rest. Read more, pray more, serve more, give more, love more. Get on it. Because who wants to fall short of this? And that's healthy to challenge ourselves if it's driving us to Jesus Christ. In order to ensure that we continue to grow in the Lord, our faith should be challenged. Our faith has to be active. And that's what Paul is encouraging us here. This activity is healthy if it causes us to repent and further our trust and salvation and security in the Lord. This is a healthy thing if it only solidifies that security that we have in Jesus Christ. But without that, I mean, it sounds absolutely miserable, doesn't it? Who wants to fear? Who wants to strive? Give more, pray more, serve more. Oh, I'm exhausted. Have I done enough? What if I haven't done enough? What if I'm going to get busted? What if I fall a little bit short? If you've had that experience, if you have that tension, everybody has that. I have that. I look at my bank account. I look at my time. I say, if I really love the Lord, wouldn't I be giving this? Wouldn't I be doing more of this? Yeah, I mean, I've gone from here to there. I've done a little bit of here to there and there. But, I mean, wouldn't I be doing more? And that is healthy if it drives me to the Lord. And every Christian experiences this. Romans chapter 7, the Apostle Paul who writes this also writes that. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. So it's good to recognize that, to check our hearts. Where are we at? Is Jesus number one? Am I repenting of this sin or am I embracing it? Where am I at with the Lord? That's a healthy question, but it's an unhealthy question if it gets to this point, right? If, it, if you lose the foundation, which Paul's going to reveal in, the moment, in a moment in the last verses, if we lose that foundation, which makes it all healthy, then it looks something more like this. Oh, I've read this thing. It tells me what God is like. I can't live up to it. It's piercing. It's crushing. It reveals the intention of my heart. I'm naked. I'm exposed before God. I have to give an account. I can't do it. I'm failing. I quit. I'm done. What does God think of me? He must look down at me with disdain. He must be angry at me. It drives us further from faith. That's when it gets unhealthy. And Paul's going to Tell us about the, the base, the foundation, the, the container in which all of that striving and fearing has to take place within. He says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. God came down and he took on flesh to walk among us so that none of us could say he doesn't know what I'm going through. Right, like obviously he knows what we're going through. He's the God who knows all. But there's, that would certainly be an excuse for every person. 
He doesn't know what I'm going through. Where is he? Does he know? No, God came here to walk the walk that he's asked us to walk, to live the life that we live so that he would, we could honestly look and say, there's no way I can get around it. He, God, came in the flesh. He knows what I've gone through. He's been tempted just as I have been. Yet he's not like me because I'm not God. He is. He did it without sin. Jesus, our high priest, sympathizes with our weaknesses. If you want to know how God feels about us, he sympathizes with our weakness. He doesn't make any of the wrong things that we've done right. He doesn't justify any of the wrong things. It doesn't lessen the need for justice any less. It doesn't mean God won't judge. He needs to. But he also sympathizes with our weakness. So then let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That's the foundation that all of this needs to happen in. Grace. Our God is a God of grace. As we challenge ourselves to be godly and come up short all the time, we need to remember that all of this needs to happen in, in the environment of God's grace. As I go through life and I look back on my sin, as I go through life and I sin afresh, new, I have shame, and that's good. Sin is bad. I don't want it. Shame is healthy. But there's also this other form of it, this other part of it that, that leads to condemnation. And the shame that I feel should draw me to my Savior who forgives me, who sympathizes with me, who has his arms open waiting for me, who died on the cross for me. That's healthy shame. But the shame that leads to condemnation, that's not healthy. As I look back at my sin and I just and I feel it crushing me. Oh, I wish I would have done better there. Oh, I wish I would have avoided that. Man, I wish I had control over this. And as I look at that sin, there's that, always that spirit of condemnation that Satan brings. To try to crush us, to, de to defeat our faith in him. Because to doubt him. To doubt this whole thing. If God is with me, would I really still be sitting in this way? If God is with me, wouldn't I have control over this thing by now? If God is with me, would I really still be suffering from that? That's Satan's voice. That's unhealthy. And what Paul says is that we've got someone who sympathizes with our weakness. As I look back on my sin and it crushes me, I imagine God, you know, hmm. Right? That's not what he does. He sympathizes with me. He walked this walk that I did. As Jesus went through, he didn't sin on any of it, but he experienced all of it. And I guarantee a man of sympathy would be like, yeah, if I wasn't God, I would certainly have fallen for that one. That's not what I envision as I, as I view God walking through my life in my place. I envision him doing perfectly and looking down on me every time I fail. But God has reasonable expectations. What a relief. What a relief. If he didn't have reasonable expectations, then he would just judge us all right now. It would be over for being ungodly. Instead, he sent his son. Every sin you've ever done in the past, every sin that you will do in the future, God already knew about it before he created the world. That's God's foreknowledge. He knew it all. And he views us with sympathy. He gets it. That's why he sent his son, because we can't do it. And as we seek to be more godly, it's not to earn our salvation. It takes place in the environment of God's grace. As we look to be ungodly and fall short and challenge ourselves 
to be more godly. It's for, for our benefit here. Like we can grow in faith. We can experience more of God's blessings. We can love ourselves and the people around us better. As we strive, as we fear, it should not drive us away from God. It should drive us towards God because we've always got a God of grace who sympathizes. And as you've gone through your life and you look back at the sins that you've done, that you repent of, God walked the same journey that we walk. And Jesus looks at those sins and he says, I get it. It doesn't make them right. Repent of them, but I get it. If I wasn't God, if I was weak, I'd been done the same thing. As someone who sympathizes, they understand. Jesus didn't do that because he is God. He came to be the person that he wanted all of us to be when he created this world. He came to be that person for us in our place because we can't do it. And so he did it. And so we can draw with what to his throne? With fear. Come to his throne with fear. No, it's come to his throne with confidence. Even though we spend our life with healthy fear, healthy striving, we can and be confident that we will enter his throne room of grace because of what Jesus Christ did, that we may receive mercy. When was the last time that you came to his throne with confidence? Come to his throne with repentance. Come to his throne with prayer of sanctification. Fill me with your spirit. But come to his throne with confidence. He's a God who has mercy for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we, as we look at challenging ourselves and growing more in Christ, and as we strive and fail and strive and fail, God, I pray that you should bless us that that whole thing could be covered with confidence, that as we do that, all of our sins are covered by your grace for us. And Lord, I pray that as we receive this offering today, that you'd bless it, that it can go to spread this message of your grace. Lord, as, as we challenge ourselves to follow you, as we challenge ourselves to give, as we challenge ourselves to be a witness, God, I pray that you would fill us with that knowledge of your grace and that this offering could go and spread that message, that you have lived the life that you asked us to live because you have reasonable expectations, and so you've come and done what we could not do for us, that you know our place, you know our walk, you know have sympathy in, for our weakness, and you have come in strength to save us. Lord, we pray that you'd give us that type of faith. And Lord, if we're not sure if we have faith in you, God, I pray that tonight, today, this morning, I should say, you'd fill us with boldness that we will go back and take advantage of the other brothers and sisters in Christ waiting to be a public uh, reception of that confession of faith, that, that desire of faith, and uh, help us to be bold and step back and pray that prayer of faith with them this morning, that today would mark the day that we know that we have confidence in your grace for us, and in our salvation, and in our future rest. Lord, we pray all these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.